0: The time of the series if there is some subject which is required or very pertinent to the things to the events like soon we are going to have the Mahashivaratri and other things but unless there is some special event and I feel that I want to make a comment really clarifying that I am now doing a series of lectures on the teachings actions, meanings, according to Jesus' life. I am going according to the Gospel of Luke. 10-15 years ago, I had done a series, which I don't know if it's uploaded or not, an old series according to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and uh, it brought a lot of aspiration into people and a lot of inspiration to people. And uh, in recent times, last year, people have asked that I should address again the teachings as coming to Jesus, because Jesus has this characteristic for many people, that he gives a lot of aspiration, that he is very uncompromising. And, uh, of course, people also want to see how that fits with yoga, how can we interpret those things from the standpoint of yoga, and especially from the standpoint of Tantric yoga, with chakras, with energies, the way we understand the universe in the metaphysics of tantric yoga as we teach it in Agama. And that is why it's a very beautiful exercise to read about some of Jesus' actions and things and to see what do they mean for a yogi. What would Swami Shivananda understand from that? What is the message would you get? across the cultural barriers and across other such limitations. And the last time, last week, I was in a paragraph, I'm somewhere in the chapter number five or something like this, and uh, Jesus was investigated about fasting. And uh, they said to him, these people who are always annoyed by Jesus, there is this class of scholars, Pharisees, and others, who see Jesus like an usurper, you know, he's an upstart coming from God knows where, nobody knew him until one year ago, now he comes and he's a big ass, he's a smart head, and he just tells, you know, and it's like, they are annoyed, and he doesn't always say things the way they want to hear it, And he doesn't preach things by the laws of Moses, 100%, and uh, he's a provoker. And normal people say, well, we don't care, he's speaking in a different way. Look, there was a blind man, and he gave sight to a blind man. We like what he says, we feel it in our heart, we are happy. But these scholarly people, they are very rigid and very annoyed, and they take it personally, like a provocation to their ego. And that's why there is always mentioned the God, There is, there are people who love him and there are people who are really annoyed by him. And actually, the more Jesus becomes stern and he goes on his horse, so to speak, the more these annoyed people, they become aggressive. And in the end, uh, things end the way, you know, and as you see in the story. Right now, we are towards the beginning of the story of Jesus. And these people are just annoyed, because there is a new star, a star is born, he's called Jesus, and he says other things than they do, and he does things in another way than they do, but he is also powerful and efficient, and things are working, and they are annoyed. And that's why all the time they provoke, they say, what do you say about it? Why don't you do this? Why do you do like this? What about that? What about that? And very often their questions are not sincere questions, like, you know, Jesus, we would like to know, what's your opinion about this? You seem to be a special person. What do you think about this? They are asking in a contradictory way. They are asking in a provocative way, because, like, he's stepping on their toes, and they want to give it back to him. So they said to him, John's disciples, that was John the Baptist, often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. You can see that this methodology, the so-called religious environment which existed in Israel, in the Israeli community, in Palestine speaking geographically, because the Romans called that area Palestine-Israel was the state of Israel, the Israel is the organization. So, today, of course, we have the state of Israel there as a country, as a name. Um, in that area, there were, of course, religious groups, some of them more intense. Like it is said, there is a whole theory, New Age theories today, that there were these people called the Essenes, who were very, Essenians, or Essenes, who were very, very ascetic, very, very Puritanic, a little bit like the Jainistic people from India, like the Jain religion, ultra-Puritans, and that Jesus was apparently one of those. It's not demonstrated. I've seen whole books written about it, which jump over the demonstration. They just assume it's right and they just jump directly to the conclusion. On a serious scholarly level, and, of course, the Christian theologians have split the hair about Jesus and the apostles for 2,000 years trying to find out every single detail because uh, they would have loved to know more about Peter and Paul and Jesus and this. <clears throat> so they try and try and tried. It's not demonstrated that Jesus was an Essene or an Essene or them. so But fact is that in that time's Jewish community, as well as other communities which were not strictly, directly Jewish, there were people who were religious. There have always been in every community in this world, Tibetan, Hindu or whatever, Greek and so on, there have been people who had religious interests and people who were because in every community there will be people who have some spiritual aspiration and who want to obtain some answers, who want to reach a certain understanding. So these people allude to others, and what do they have to say? What do they do? They do headstand. They do pranayama. They do a Shabbat diet. They do worship of the goddesses. No. It's fasting and prayer. It's a very simplified method. Like, if I would give you an agama, you want to come to agama, you do fasting and prayer. We do fasting and prayer all the time. Maybe some of you would still be here. But most of you would probably not. Because it's like it's not enough. It's a very dry method. All you have to do is do fasting. Like let's do fasting three times per week. When Monday, Wednesday, Friday are fasting days. You don't eat anything Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's like it's a method. And fasting does work in many ways. And then prayer. Of course prayer is the active one, because fasting, what do you do when you fast? Fasting is a negative method in the meaning, not that it's negative, like it has negative effect, it's in the meaning that it's a method which is a no method, like you don't do anything, you just don't eat. And then of course in the fasting there appears a purification, the human being is connected to the cosmic energy, because the body has to get something, and if you don't give it with the food, with the prana from the food and the water, then <clears throat> the body has to connect to the cosmic sources. So fasting is a way of opening up towards cosmic energies, because you whip your body. You simply say, today you don't get food. Do something. And then the subconscious mind knows what to do, and it says, okay. I start sucking some prana from the universe, you know? So it's a method, it's a bit of a rude method, barbaric method, but it works. As you know, it has a lot of healing effects, it has a lot of purification effects, it can be considered a kriya and so on. And of course, for some people, it is also a spiritual method because it opens up and when you don't have food in your stomach, your muladhara gets lower, your svadhisthana gets lower, and by comparison, your anahata or your ajna or your sahasrara get higher. So if you diminish the animal, If you kill the animal part in you, then the spiritual part becomes exalted like a seesaw by comparison, by simply relatively speaking. So in this way, a person that is fasting, if they sit down and meditate or in this situation, if they pray, or in Tibetan yoga, if you do the yoga of the lucid dreaming or something, it works better. Fasting definitely helps. It's not a method which is very much (coughs) a tantric method because the tantric mentality is to rely on lots of energy, to do things like a blockbuster. And when you are fasting you are not a blockbuster because you will run on very low vitality. But uh, this is not a tantric method. This are typical ascetic method inherited from the ascetic religions and spiritualities of the Middle East. And, of course, they did a lot of fasting and other things in India as well, not only in the Middle East. So the whole world has known about this. So it's a combination of fasting and prayer. Fasting is like preparing the ground, laying the table. And then there is prayer. So the prayer is the only active thing. Don't take it minimalistic, like, oh, it's just prayer. Prayer can be huge. 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 But then you have to do it with the proper technology, and you have to do it. You have to actually do it. Like the people who are in the environments where prayer is done, you can join the Bhakti retreat next week or then see for yourself Like what's the intensity of things. Or if you go to a Christian monastery, the complaint of all the gurus that run ashrams in India and the complaint of all the abbots and theologians that wrote about Christian monasteries and the complaint of all the Sufi masters who wrote about Sufi dhargas is precisely this, that people don't do prayer. I've been to Mount Otto several, and it's supposed to be one of the most prayerful places in the world. Actually, it was very tamasic and very inert, and very few people actually did prayer. You know, I can stand up, you go and sit on your knees, and then for two hours you pray. You actually pray, you don't pick your nose. You actually pray. Very, 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 very few people were doing this. People were fixing agricultural machines. Uh, They were having a carpentry shop. Some of them were painting. Uh, Some of them were doing farming, taking care of the olive trees and so on. Like, Of course, some some maintenance, some daily maintenance is necessary, especially when you want to be self-sufficient. But believe me, I've been there and witnessed it with my own eyes several times. They were doing much more than the minimum necessary for sustenance and for survival. They were replacing prayer with all sorts of daily life things. Because, and the great,
1: if you read the
0: great saints of Christianity, they write it very clearly. They say when you do prayer, the demons suffer. They said the prayer has the same effect as you put fire in your aura. And if there is any demon sucking you or persecuting you, in the moment when you pray, it's like they touch a red hot plate. You become like a red hot plate, and they scream and they run in agony. And that's why the demons and the devils pray that you shouldn't pray. Their interest is that you shouldn't pray. And they said that's why in the religious world, People, a million people go to monasteries and they claim they are going to pray, but they just go to the religious services, which are compulsory. So they go in the morning mass and they go to the evening service and then all the rest of the day they pick their noses. They do something else, they don't pray. Out of a million people, men and women, who live in monasteries, maybe a thousand pray every day, six hours. The others... Just did it, Alan. they do whatever. So, prayer, even prayer, don't minimize it, don't underestimate it. If it's done, it's done. That's because you, dear friends, you haven't seen much of what prayer means. Because people who are expert in prayer, they don't show it, they don't share it. It's done in privacy and in secret. It's extremely seldom. That you will find a person who did 20 years of prayer and did it and is going to show you how to pray or say sit here and pray with me extremely seldom i have known a very advanced monk passed away many years ago i have known one who is really good at prayer like I, i verified him in various ways including with other people who are very good at prayer and they confirmed that this man was amazing and he was talking about his guru, his elder. You know, They don't call them gurus, they call them elders. You know? And he said, I lived with this elder. He allowed me to live in the same room with him. We were living in the same room, eating in the same room, sleeping in the same room. And he said, I have never seen this guy lying down. When in the evening, when I went to bed tired, he was still sitting on this triangular chair and doing prayer or reading religious text. When I woke up in the morning, he was already sitting on his chair, praying or reading I don't even know if he actually lied down at any time. I just know that I have never seen him sleeping. When you are with such a person, then such a person transmits to you, osmotically, telepathically, the art of prayer. So the art of prayer is something very profound. Because it becomes meditation, but it's a meditation in which you speak to God. So it's a meditation which is connected to God. It's not that you meditate on the cycles of nature. I meditate on spring, summer, autumn, and winter. What has that got to do with God? Nothing. Except that, of course, God is the creator of the reality. But otherwise, what has that got to do? So meditation can be on things which are collateral. Prayer can never be collateral because you talk to God. There is nothing more direct than that. Of course, most of you, when you hear about prayer, you are thinking about some of the sectarian, Pentecostal, Baptist, all these neo-Protestant movements who pray like, Hallelujah, Lord, believe me, you've never known people who really did the art of prayer. That's not prayer, all this hysterical firebrand prayer, which is very noisy and very, and then they sing some Afro-spiritual, some Negro-spiritual music, and like it. when you have been with people who go in Samadhi in prayer, and you see that thing, it's such a cheap circus, it's so superficial, and then people claim, hallelujah, brothers and sisters, you know, You throw the crouches and now you can walk again because Jesus has healed you. Then you go home and after two days you have to buy new crouches because you are too arrogant to go back to the church and say, actually, I was just whipped up and I was uh, wired up. But then as soon as I went home, I fell in the wheelchair again, so I still need my crouches, you know. Now, no. so many of these churches show you wheelchairs and crouches thrown by these This is collective hysteria. These are phenomena in Svadhisthana, where people are going into a sort of a frenzy, but it's nothing which lasts. Very, very, very seldom will you find a miracle, a real miracle, in the middle of this. So the art of prayer is something much more subtle. Is when people, prayer is not about asking anything from God. There was a, a, There is a story in the Indian environment with somebody who is a worshiper of the goddess, And he is uh, painting some roof of a house and because of an accident it sets on fire. It's a flammable uh, paint, and he gets burned really badly, especially on his hands and on his face. And he he falls down from the roof, he tumbles, and in the middle of that he prays to the Mother, to the Cosmic Mother. Kali or Sundari or whichever was his goddess in his environment. And she appears to him because he is in a state of shock, in a coma, and something like a miracle happens. And she says, what do you want, my son? And he's like, oh my God, you know, Kali has shown herself to me. You know, like yesterday, I've been praying to Kali for the last 20 years. I didn't see her. Now, you know, and she says, what do you want? And of course, the, the inference is clear, like you are burned badly, you are mutilated, and you want me to fix you. And the old Hindu man is a real spiritual man, is a real religious man. He says, the only thing which I want, mother, is to be more with you. You know, like, I want you to come again. I want you to keep me in this state. You know, that's all I want. You know, like, burned on the face or not burned on the face, who does not care? I want to be with you. That's the only desire. That's prayer. Prayer is not about praying to be healed, or praying to have money, or praying to, I don't know, to get some sex, or praying, you know. That's inferior and completely ridiculous to use prayer for these things. The actual prayer is an exercise of communion, of being together, of oneness, of intimacy. And that prayer has its rules and has its technology. Not very complicated, but still it has some rules and technology. And of course if you do prayer on a full stomach, you are digesting and you are heavy and slow. And if you have been fasting for 12 hours or for 16 hours already, you are burning. You are burning and you are lying and alert. You are like a hungry animal, you know. You are alert. And then you are praying and praying and there is a lot of fire inside you. And then that prayer can lead to high state. So the spiritual lineages which existed in that time were mostly fasting and prayer. But remember, prayer was meant by prayer, like like the Sufis, Nevlana Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, when he created branches of the Sufi schools in the 12th century, he said, how should my people pray? There were some prayers, the Islamic prayers, this mosque prayer that you see people doing in Makkah and other places, you know? Like, of course, there is a system of prayer, but this Islamic prayer, if you have ever gone to a mosque and following Islamic people praying on Friday, they pray on Friday and the prayer is like 20 minutes, 25 minutes or some, maybe less. You go to even in India and other places and suddenly the muezzin is calling people to prayer and the Muslim people from New Delhi, they stop, they stretch their carpets for prayer and they start praying to make, how long does it last? 10, 15 minutes, something like this, no? So, and they do that 4 times, 5 times per day, they are supposed to do it 5 times per day, Not everybody is that uh, consistent with their practice, but the real dedicated ones, they try to do it five times per day. Maybe that means 75 minutes of prayer per day for normal people on the street. And then Rumi was trying to upgrade that. And then they found out prayer either when you hyperventilate, like Allah who, Allah who. Allahu, and you go like this five hours and a half until you freak out completely and you go in a state of trance. Or another type of prayer, and there are 12 such types of prayer in the Sufi mm-hmm. lineages, is of course the that dance. Where you put your head to the left and palm left palm up and right palm down and start going And you go like this for two hours. The Sufis in Turkey, they set sometimes festivals where they continue spinning like this. One person is there all the time, and the musicians, even for 30 days, I think once, not long time ago, they tried to do 90 days of non-stop spinning, like praying to God with the body, with everything, non-stop. Again, not the same person, but they have like 20 persons who do it, and they take shifts. So it's like almost every day, you come one hour, you spin, you take two hours, you rest. You come another one hour, and you spin, you take two hours, and you rest, you know? So this is prayer. These are methods of prayer, even if spinning is a very exotic method of prayer, very unusual, no? like you wouldn't convince Christian monks to pray while spinning. You know, they would consider it a strange blasphemy or something. Of course, it's not a blasphemy. It's a wonderful method, but they are not open enough to understand and to learn from Rumi, so they just learn and understand from their own lineages. Even so, in their own lineages, They are methods of prayer. There is the prayer of the heart, and then you have all seen the Jewish people praying while they're swinging their body, doing some things, and they tie a string around their arms, especially around their forearms, a tight string, and they pray doing like this and so on. All those have an effect. Somebody invented those things because they had some effect. And therefore, there are different methods of prayer, and again, Some of these methods are purely spiritual and they go deeper. So do not underestimate the power of prayer because especially in Bhakti Yoga, prayer is the only thing. And if you read mystical literature, you will see that the people who do this prayer, that's what they complain. They complain there are only two monks in the whole monastery who actually do prayer. All the rest are just eating free food and they are living a lazy life maybe they do some part, they are administrators, they are, they are workers, they are lay workers. And only two people in the whole monastery actually do 6 hours or 16 hours of prayer every day. So, um, so they confront Jesus and they say, hey, like, we are not born yesterday. There is people around here who are spiritual, they do fasting and prayer. But your disciples go on eating and drinking. Which means Jesus, in these three years, he was not telling to people, hey, everybody, we stop, we take a hit your tents, put your tents up, and then in thirty minutes we'll start prayer. He did not institute an ashram life a sort of a monastery life, like, hey, no, we go from Capernaum to Nazareth, but, uh, you know, we have to do some practice also. No, he was the practice. He was the practice because he was performing so many miracles, and he was giving so much faith, and he was shining, and he was giving teaching. It was like enough. He didn't need to do dervish dance when you were in the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus was the dervish dance for you because it increased your spirit so much. So, of course, it was exceptional. As soon as Jesus passed away, people started doing prayer because they were not with Jesus. Now, many people are saying, ah, you are saying that this guy was crucified and died and then three days later, he was back on his feet. Ah, right. No, we don't know if we can believe that. Then you fast and pray. No? Because you don't have the living proof in front of you to kind of give, make you enthusiastic and to give you the faith. Even Thomas, when he saw Jesus, he said, I can't believe I've been with Jesus for what? One year, two years, three years, whatever, you know? And the man was there. And he asked to see his wounds, to see the scars, because he still could not believe it. And he had seen Jesus bringing the daughter of Jairus alive, because he had been the servant of Jairus. And that's one of the three persons that Jesus has brought back to life. He has seen at least one resurrection, that Jesus brought back this little girl to life. He has seen it. And now he's asking Jesus to see his scars. When the human mind is hell, The human mind has so much doubt. And Jesus was the antidote to doubt. You know, like if you walked with him and ate with him and slept with him, either he was sleeping or not, we don't know, you No, know, really, if he was like this guy I told you about, you know. But the fact is that going with him was exhilarating. Going with him like you were high all the time because it's like, oh, here is another one. Jesus did another one. You know, it's like, it's like you get punches in the face all the time. It's like, oh, I'm groggy all day long. I'm living with this man. I don't know what's real and what's not real anymore. I don't know what to believe. You know, All my beliefs are shattered because Jesus is shaking the world with his presence. You know, So, so then there is no need for prayer and Dermish dancing and fasting and things like this. So Jesus, apparently, for the Pharisees and the others, he was like negligent with discipline. You know? He didn't say, hey, we are in an ashram here. Even if we move, it's a moving ashram, but it's an ashram, you know? So from time to time we stop and practice. Every day, every day. So that's why, again, not every guru is like Jesus. Like if you went to the ashram of Swami Shivananda, Swami Shivananda was separating two hours when he said from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, everybody practiced. You wake up, you take breakfast, you do this, you do that, then eight o'clock you start practicing Pata Yoga or Raja Yoga or whatever you do. No? Because maybe Swami Shibananda felt like I'm not like Jesus. I cannot walk on water and raise the dead. Therefore people will have more doubts with me than they had with Jesus. With Jesus it was hard to have doubts and still people had even one of his apostles, Judas, had so many doubts that betrayed him in the end you know? It's like, the obvious people had had doubts even with Jesus. And this man was walking on water and raising the dead. And people still had doubts. So, of course people will have doubts about me, or about Shivananda, or about whoever you want to put in this. And then, when you are in an ashram, when you are in a school, then there are courses of yoga, there is tapasya, then Swami, we we in Agama, we never had an ashram. Things are in such a way that the will of Shiva is that I never managed to, although I'm an earth sign and I like stability and so on, I never managed to put two and two together and have a national. So even you, when you come to me, we have a center, which people are trying to destroy even this one, and besides this center where you can study and meet with me, you live in bungalows, you live in bungalows, you live in bungalows, and only God knows what you do in those bungalows. Maybe you get drunk every night and you don't practice Brahmacharya, and you don't do this, and you are eating tons of meat, and so on that that? So okay, it's your right to do whatever you want with your life, and I don't practice the Spanish Inquisition. But of course, if you would be going into the hard School of Yoga in their ashram, once you go in their ashram, you are strictly vegetarian, there is no meat in that ashram. You are doing this, you are doing that, you know, like things are different when you are in a monastery or in an ashram. It would have been interesting for me in my life to have you at least for three days or for 30 days or for 30 years in my hand. So I can tell you now I practice two hours. You know, like there is a discipline in this place and you do. It didn't happen. It's part of my own destiny that the universe gave me this way of being with you. No, but even like this, we have forces. We have recommendations, I sometimes tell to some of you, please work more on the heart chakra, please supply more your sexual energy, please work more on the chakra, please do this, please do that, no? And I rely on the fact that perhaps people will not be sabotaged by the demons and go home and actually not do anything, but I hope that some people will actually be able to do at least two hours of practice per day, you know, because like, why the heck did you come to Kopangan
1: if you don't want to go to a yoga school,
0: not to the margaritas on the beach, you know, when did you come to Kopangan if you don't want to do some spiritual practice, you know, it's like, you could listen to my lectures from Paris on YouTube, you know, it's like, you don't need to come here for just hearing some uh, special thing. But you come here obviously because you'd like to do some self-discipline and do that. So, um, Jesus, uh, obviously from these reproaches which were leveled at him, he was not. He was like natural, sahaja, samadhi, you know. He was just going around, preaching, preaching, sometimes miracles, world happening. He was giving teachings of different times. But apparently, there was not a tradition in his little group, in his little mobile ashram. There was not a tradition about fasting and prayer, of course. Jesus was sometimes praying, like, God, heal this person or something. So, of course, there was some prayer, but not hours and hours of prayer, like a systematic practice of going deeper or something like that. So, they were asking because they thought that Jesus is just another leader of a community. He's some guru. But of course, we all know that Jesus acted as much, much more than that. And he answered with a parable, which, uh, if you read it like this, you would say, this guy really had a great opinion about himself. Like, uh, you know... You can also ask yourself, like, is Jesus arrogant? Is he lacking modesty? He is not, as history has shown, as the story has shown. But he also knows the truth about something, and he speaks naturally and easily about the truth. So Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He alludes like the whole thing is a wedding party. These three years that you are with me, it's the ultimate spiritual party. And he is the bridegroom, so it's a feast. And therefore, if you are with God, walking around through Galilee or whatever it was, through Judea, you don't need to fast, you don't need to just pay attention. Just assimilate everything, because that's enough, that's good enough. But hey, that's very high, you know. Even uh, Ramakrishna was sending his pupils to practice. Even Milarepa was sending his pupils to practice. They were not just saying, oh, it's enough, just look at me, I'm going to walk on water a little bit for you, then that's enough practice for you while I'm alive. All right. Only Jesus has this kind of you know, and if you don't believe that he's spiritual or anything, this guy is a huge megalomaniac. You know, definitely truly megalomaniac to say such a thing. Or if he is right, true. You know, it's like this man is the way he says it. Later, I am the truth, the way. You know, and I, I'm it. I'm the reality. You know, it's like you are looking at it right now. You know that there is this beautiful scene in the Zeffirelli movie where he says that he came to be the truth, to give witness to the truth, and Pontius Pilate, who is talking in his head with Roman and Greek philosophy, and all this decadent Roman Empire, Greek civilization philosophy, which is jerking off, we are not getting anywhere with it, he says, ha, what is the truth? Where is the truth, you know? Like the truth doesn't exist, who can But he was looking at the truth, because Jesus said, I am the way, the life, you know, It's like, but in another circumstance, not there, No, three days before when he resurrected Lazarus, or one week before, No, and now, you know, and the people were passing by, and they were not seeing, so Jesus is at a level where, which makes him unique, not even great gurus of yoga have been able to have this kind of influence in such a way, so he said, but The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Okay, you don't know if he predicts he will be crucified or that he will die prematurely. Because the way it's formulated, you can say, hey, the man simply said that one day he will be dead. He will not be on the face of this earth anymore. So we don't take it as a prophecy. But anyway, he said, I'm here. I was born 30 years ago. There will come a day when obviously I'm not going to be around here. At least you won't see me. I'm not going to be physically visible among you. And therefore, he said, there will come a day when the bridegroom, him, will be taken from them. In those days, they will fight. That's why, of course, the Christian church, the Christian religion, as soon as they went into the mourning mode, because that's why the monks in Christianity and the nuns, they are dressed in black. They are dressed in black because it's the color of mourning. It's like somebody has died and is not with us anymore and we regret him. And that somebody is Jesus himself. So all the monks and the nuns are mourning for Jesus. And as they are mourning for Jesus, they fast, they pray, they do all these things because those three years and a half were a huge grace. And the people who were in the presence of Jesus, they had something Very, very special, which replaced prayer, fasting and everything. He told them this parable, he was always speaking in analogous ways, which sometimes people either misunderstood or didn't understand at all, or sometimes they were very naughty and very provocative, pushing people's buttons, you know, because he says, I'm the bridegroom and my people don't need to fast." And the Pharisees or whoever was asking the question said, yeah, yeah, and I'm going back to my monastery and there I'll get It's very irritating that Jesus is keeping these people in a luxury trip for three years and they apparently walk on the clouds, you know, and nobody seems to do any serious spiritual effort. that then we do, and then Jesus tells us that we are the losers who will miss the kingdom of heaven and his pupils are the ones who are, and his followers. And it's very annoying. Like Jesus is not afraid to be provocative. You know, to tell some truth as they are. You know? Even if it is as in the present circumstances where everybody is asking me if I could be a bit apologetic and politically correct. You know? I'm not going to be. Because there is no need for it. The truth is the way the truth is, and if the people hate me for telling the truth, they are welcome to do so. You know, it's, like it's their choice in life. So in this, in the same way, that's why I'm saying sometimes telling the truth is a provocative thing. And Jesus here, he's telling his truth, which is of course a much bigger thing, and uh, they don't like it. He told them was a parable, and the parable is pushing the envelope. Is, the, the ante is rising right the state, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. What's the old garment? The Jewish religion. He basically tells them, I came with a new code, which is going to be called Jewish Religion 2.0. It's updated, it's the next version of it. Moses did 1.0 and I'm giving you 2.0. That's why in the Bible this is called the New Covenant, the New Testament. It's a new deal with God. The first deal was made with God with Abraham, then it was perfected with the tablets of the law with Moses on Mount Sinai, and then the Jews lived like that for a thousand years. And then Jesus is coming and saying the history is not forward, it's time for a new covenant. Like, for example, he says you don't need to take lambs and kill them and burn them for God. But you take bread and you say it's Jesus and then you eat that bread. So it becomes symbolic. It becomes metaphysical. And this is the communion. So instead of burning lambs and getting blood, you are getting bread and wine, which is symbol of the flesh and of the blood, of the lamb, which is Jesus himself. Now, and therefore, it's a new covenant. In this new covenant, men are not circumcised anymore. The Jewish people, God told to Abraham, every member in your community should be circumcised. And when they circumcise babies, they say, this is the sign in flesh of the covenant between the God and our Abraham, our father. Abraham, no? Then Jesus says that covenant is cancelled. I spoke to God and we made a new deal. And the new deal is every Sunday you are just giving bread and wine and sharing it. That's the sacrifice which you do. And so it's a new Jesus is telling them I'm bringing something new. Which is of course, it's unacceptable like who the heck are you? update what Abraham and Moses did. I was seeing recently this Ten Commandments, new production done some ten years ago or whenever, now in the 2000, not the old one with Charlton Heston, but the new one. Like, when you think about what Moses did, my goodness, there were miracles over miracles over miracles over miracles, you know, including crossing the Red Sea, splitting the water, like, huge things be able to come and to say, I'm bigger than Moses, I've got the version 2.0, it's like you have to have the balls of an elephant, you know, it's like you have to be really confident in the fact that you are not a blasphemer, you are not mad and you didn't lose it completely, and now you have some megalomonic thing. So Jesus is telling them, I'm not just going to bring some old thing and just patch the old thing. I prefer to renew the whole thing, because patching it is not a good thing. And he simply says first aesthetically that you torn the new one, why tear the new one when you have it, a full new one already there, and the patch will not match the old. And no one pours, he gives another simile, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. You know, in the old days, they kept water and drinks in gourds made of skin, made of animal skin. And I guess none of you has used gourds of skin, wine skins and so on. And nobody has used it in the Western world since a hundred years or something. So you don't know, but of course, because it's the skin of an animal, it gets old, it gets cracked, it catches smell in time, it, uh, it accumulates some smell. So of course, from time to time, once every three years or something, I don't even know how often, uh, you know, you have to renew the wineskins, you have to get new ones, you know. So there is also a thing of wearing and things getting old and not so nice anymore. And he says no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the one will, the wine will run out, because they are cracked already, and the wineskins will be ruined. So the correct thing is just discard what Moses said. And move to what Jesus said. If you can, if you dare, the Jewish community next to this got split. Some said, no, 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 no. We don't move with this new deep guy who is, no, 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 no. He, does, he doesn't inspire enough confidence. And other people said, no, he is a Messiah. He came with a message from God and now we get to step number 2.0. Or, Judah is 1.0 with Abraham, 2.0 with Moses, 3.0 with Jesus, you know? It's like it's a, the renewed, the updated version of the relationship with God. Many people were not able to believe that, and they were discouraged. Like, Jesus was pushing this envelope to the limit of human credibility. You know, although he walked on water, it was difficult for people to... Except, you know, it's like in India, Buddha said the caste system starts sucks and it should stop. Mahatma Gandhi, 2,500 years, and many, many others in between them said the caste system, the caste system still exists in India, and the Hindus still live by the caste system. And they marry by the caste system. And, you know, like, for 2,500 years, wise people told you to flush the toilet with the caste system, and they can't like 2.0, is 3.0, 5.0, no? but they cannot, they cannot, they cannot, they, they are still stuck with the caste, which was a system which was valid 4000 years ago, it's not for now, it's for another time of history. So that's why with Jesus I can also understand, for some people Jesus was too much, especially if they saw him one day here and one day next year, And every time he was big mouthed and smart ass and talking to people dismissively like you don't understand, you don't do this now, the bridegroom is here, you should all celebrate. It's like, like, who is this guy? And you hear, oh, they say he raised a dead man. Uh, Sure, I also heard that David Copperfield is flying every Sunday in Las Vegas, you know. Maybe there is a trick. Maybe there's like, what do I know? You know, so it's like. That's why I say you cannot really blame people for doing this, especially when Jesus pushed things far, really, like make a revolution, completely change your things, and permanently. He says he has been told to you like this, but now I'm changing the deal and I'm coming here and telling you it shall be like that. Very, it requires a lot of faith. To believe one guy keep looking, you know that okay, you hear he's walking on water, and this, but still. It's like, Whoa. So he says, "No, new wine must be poured only into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new." For he says, "The old is better." So he wants to keep the wine in the wineskins until it becomes mature there. So this parable, a bit twisted as it is, some of these parables are sometimes funny to say the least, but uh, you know, he just wants to make a point. And he says, look, it's the bridegroom. I'm here. There comes a new covenant. It's the year zero, right? After all in the Western culture we can say that we are in the year 2562 from the standpoint of Thailand Buddhists, but in the West, the year zero is a, it's anno domini. It's before Christ and after Christ. That's how history was in the West, and so it's like the history. Jesus is like the history is restarting with me. We reset the clock of the history right now. So uh, he is very bold in his statement. And that doesn't contribute. Like people who are open-minded would say, okay, maybe let's stay with this guy here some more. Maybe see him again floating through the air or something. So we get a bit more faith. And some other people say, nah, nah, he is uh, just a magician. He is doing some shit. You know? And people will be turned off and think, oops, this man is too much. So... That was his answer about prayer and fasting. He doesn't deny the value of prayer and fasting. He just says not for three years and a half. After you lose me, then there will be plenty of fasting and plenty of prayer to be done. And thus we move to the chapter number six. Don't ask me, I don't know how many chapters that are coming up. I didn't look in advance. doesn't matter because we're not doing theological surveys. I'm just telling you some of the words and stories of Jesus seeing a little bit, like, how this fits with things which we know in spirituality and metaphysics. One Sabbath, so it was a Saturday, Jesus was going to the grain field, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, you know, like you rub barley or oats or something, or wheat itself, to separate the husk from the uh, grains themselves and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, "What? why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Even if it was not the Sabbath, it's like, to whom did those fields belong? Wheat is not just growing like this, especially in the deserts of Palestine. Must have been somebody who worked their ass to plant that wheat or oats or what they were there, to irrigate it in the desert. And it was his bread for the coming year. And these guys passed the road, it's exactly as you pass the road and see a mango tree with mangoes or a banana tree with bananas. And you don't ask if these belong to some family, You just go and pick them up. But maybe it's not polite. Maybe it's not like, you know, these people thought that the whole world belonged to them. They are going around. They are high because of being with Jesus. Jesus told them how important they are for the future of the planet, and indeed they have been. And that's why these people were like, hey, we've got the whole world. Like they were in a hype. They were gone completely, you know, because they owned the world, because they were with Jesus. I have seen this in people being with some gurus. I have known in my life a couple of gurus who were very good at pumping people up like this and giving them a lot of confidence. And it's like people were walking 10 centimeters above the ground, you know. And then they thought they were entitled. These people were entitled. Forget that it's the Sabbath. They are just walking on a road in Israel, in Judea, in Samaria, wherever it was. And while they are walking on the road, they see some wheat. And they just go and take some and eat it. We are hungry. Hippies, Gypsies. You know, they're like gypsies, they go around and they steal the crops of people. Even that was not nice, and Jesus still thought it was right. You know, like the nature belongs to God, we belong to God, people have to share, people have to be generous, so the fact that I and my pupils are eating just a kilo of wheat, all of us together, and so on, summed up together, it's not a tragedy, and we're not really thieves or something. He did not consider it a theft, but really, if you look at it, it never says that they asked for permission and then they did it, you know. And after they do this, then there was also the thing that it was in the day of Sabbath. The traditional Jews said you have to prepare your food on Friday and Saturday just sit and smile to God. And if you have some food already there, you take it, but you don't do this because this is like agricultural work, you know. You are actually separating wheat and husk and so on. You don't do that. So if you didn't take care to provide for food on Friday, Saturday, I guess you will have to stay hungry, you know. Be more careful next time. Next week, pay more attention. Or whatever other rules there were there. But definitely this was not good for the day of the Sabbath. Not to mention that it was not very... Not very, like, these people felt entitled, you know, like, we're going and the nature belongs to us, you know, and we can do things. I've seen that in spiritual circles. Sometimes spiritual people, they develop such a ecstatic, they get carried so much in it, that sometimes they take some things for granted. And then, they go around, you know, doing things which are not Perhaps the most uh, simple thing. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? These people were constantly trying to find that Jesus had 25 mistakes every day, you know? Like, he had to be judged all the time and he had to be exposed. Like, you are not the real deal. Yesterday you told us this shit with fasting and, uh, you know, bullshit. You know, your pupils should pray and they should fast. And you gave us all your silly explanations that you are the bridegroom and you don't put a patch on it, like, you know, you with your parables and this. And now you are eating on the Sabbath, you are doing things on the Sabbath day, you know, like they always wanted to expose here, you are doing another one and another. Like you definitely are not kosher. You definitely are not kadosh. You know, you holy. You're definitely, some, there's something wrong with you, man people say you are a prophet, but uh, Jesus answered him. He always has an answer. Jesus answered to them. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Yeah, but people say, yeah, but David, now you compare yourself to David. There's another big one. No. Okay, David was a king, man. David lived 500 years ago. David was a prophet and a warrior, and now you you know, like comparing yourself to David is another shameless thing, you know. You change the line, you compare yourself, with something like, okay. But he's going directly to it, you know. He says it has been seen before. Even David, what he said, he entered, and his companions, not only him, he entered the house of God, which is a temple. He entered in the temple, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful, only for priests to eat. In the Jewish rituals from those days and still today, besides the story with the lamb which was burned to ashes and other things, some of the offerings was this story with bread, this uh, unleavened bread, this special Jewish type of bread, and generally only the priests were eating it, it was like a consecrated bread, <laughs> and it was eaten in the rituals as a sort of a communion and consecration and things. And David said, the heck with it. I'm hungry, my friends are hungry, I am the prophet of God. And, uh, you know, we have not been made slaves of three pieces of bread. The rules go only this far. But when King David is hungry, he breaks the rules a little bit. And he knows God will understand that these people were treating this story I don't know, our Jewish friends here can tell you how many rules you have to obey every day to be holy. There are like 800 rules or something on the kind of hundreds or something like this, you know. It's maddening. Nobody can really do it. There are traditionalists who try still. But it's like maddening. You cannot. It has become like a Gothic, Arabesque, you know. It has become like the Gothic style in art, you know. It's overloaded and overcharged with too many things to do, and not going in the simplicity of, I am with God, you know, I, God is with me, and, you know, like David, David was at least spiritual, he said, okay, all these rules, you know, sometimes they are too much, right right now, we are hungry, we have no food, there is nothing to do, so we eat from the bread in the temple, you know, it's like do you think God will strike us dead, you know, it's like what kind of God is that, you know, that, that God is an imbecile if he does that, you know. Like of course God has an understanding, which is way above these rules, and he can see that now there was an exceptional situation, and also David is an exceptional person. So Jesus is no less, he says, oh, I am a special person in special circumstances. We, my group of Hippies, we don't have a farm, we don't live in an ashram, we don't have a monastery, we don't have a community, and therefore we eat whatever we can, whenever we can. We are like the birds of the sky, So God feeds the birds of the sky, and God feeds us as well. And also, even if it's Sabbath, we are hungry, and we didn't provide some food since yesterday, in our pockets, and therefore, now we got hungry, we have to do something for it. So, it is very breaking the standards, of course. And so, he goes and says, Don't you know what David did? That again, provocative example. You are not David, for God's sake. Eh? And he also gave some to his companions. Like not only David, that he was with God, an enlightened prophet or somebody he gave to everybody. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, which is him that he designates himself sometimes by calling himself the Son of Man, which is a way of archetypal. He said, I am each and every human being. I am the archetypal man. I am a symbol of humanity. I am God, connecting to humanity. I'm the doorway between God and humanity. I'm the connecting link between God and humanity. So part of me is human because he's born out of a womb of a woman with a human body, sleeping, eating like everybody else. So he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Supper. There he almost proclaims his divinity. Like he says, I'm bigger than the stupid laws about the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I decide what it is. Again, how can you accept when God told to Moses or something, you shall observe the Sabbath? Then comes this guy with a dubious reputation, and he says, I eat from the field, I do like King David in emergency situations, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Very bold statement. Again, you can see that Jesus pushed the envelope to the edge. It's no wonder that eventually he got it. He had it coming. Only somebody who is asking for trouble pushes that far and that much. He could have pushed in 30 years like Buddha. You know what I think we provoke, we urge the people from uh, Capernaum, one of those villages. Too much. Let's give them a break until next spring. You know, like we can do a revolution in thirty years. But he just caused tsunami in three and a half. You know, like in pain. Like there is no patience. I came to do the work of God. Boom, rush everything in my way like a caterpillar, you know, like I'm a bulldozer, I'm a steamroller, you know. Nothing stands in my way, because I've got no time. In four years I have to be back in heaven, you know? So it's like, let's do this quick, quick. Well, quick, quick at the effect It's like a speedboat. If you run a speedboat with 30 kilometers per hour, you get this much foam. And if you run a speedboat with 200 kilometers per hour, it's a totally different story of what's happening with the water under the boat. And therefore, Jesus is the speedboat here. He is just like Flushing everything, not holding back, just pushing, and he gives all the provocative examples. He places himself automatically in the big league, like he is in the most major league, and he assumes right, which only David and Moses and Abraham had in history. It's like nobody is here. No, he actually comes and says, I'm bigger than those three. Those three who are not worthy to tie my shoelaces, And I like, I am their daddy. It's like, oh, it's like, what is this? On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching, which was okay. And the man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Right. In the moment when you are in the attention of these people that hate you, they speculate any mistake. Any mistake you do is going to be chasing the mistakes. They are hunting you down because they want, they want to catch you. Now, Jesus was on the blacklist for many people already. So they were just watching all the time, let's see if he does some other shit so we can add to the list. We can write the black book of Jesus. How did Jesus break the law shamelessly? How many times? And you know, they were just building up the caves against Jesus already. And of course, you would say that if you are like Jesus, you should hold back a little bit. You know, it's like, okay, now if I do this one on top of everything... We, like, what would it cost to postpone this for tomorrow? I call this man with the arm, say, son, sonny boy, I want to see you tomorrow. Because in my mind I know tomorrow I'm going to fix your arm. But see, Jesus is like, uh, he really wants to step on their toes. Because he doesn't like their ignorance, their arrogance. He is provoked by the fact that they are against him. And he's treating them the same way. You know, like, the more you don't like me, the more I'm going to step on your toes. You know, like, because in the end, this thing has to snap. Either you are with me, or you are against me. You know, it's like we don't make any compromise, in which people come later and say, But Lord, oh Lord, you know, in that day I was also, when I was with you, and you didn't say you didn't make it black or white. You were with me or you were not with me. Really, no? he says it somewhere else. It's his idea about things. He who is not with me is against me. That's as simple as that. You know, like it's black and white from this standpoint. You know, you fall to the left or you fall to the right. That's all. There is no middle part in this. So, they were, they didn't push him. Some other times they pushed him. But now there was a man there and they knew this guy is maniacal with his killing, miracles and so on. So let's see if he does it again. Let's see. If, and of course you would expect that Jesus would be a bit diplomatic. But he isn't. Diplomacy is not one of the qualities of Jesus. Or maybe he can be the most diplomatic person in the world. But in this situation he doesn't want to use. In those three years and a half, He didn't use too much diplomacy. He simply said, diplomacy, when I'll be back in heaven, I'll play with diplomacy. Right now, I'm going to step on toes, big time. And he did. So, uh, the situation was cooked. It was like this, and now everybody was (laughs) waiting to see if he does it. And of course, you know, even without me reading what's coming further, you know that Jesus has the balls of an elephant. And he's just going to do it right in their face. Because it's like, why not? Why not? And then, <coughs> but Jesus knew what they were thinking, <coughs> obviously, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So the poor guy who was in the middle, who was in the crossfire, <coughs> he was the state. Like, imagine what was in that man. You have a shriveled hand, you hate your life because of it. Everybody would like to have a dead hand, a dead arm or whatever because how far up it was. So his life was shit because of it. He was begging in the synagogue or whatever, so, And now, there is a rumor, there is a guy who is raising the dead. And who could fix your hand? And the only stake is that maybe he shouldn't do it on the Sabbath day. He should wait one more day. It's like God, you know, I would run after him. Even if he leaves my village tonight, I would run and tomorrow I would ask, now it's not the Sabbath, can you please do it, you know? It's like, it's my arm, it's my life, it's my happiness. Today is the beginning of the rest of my life, you know? It's like a, a, a happy new life is waiting for me. So this guy, and, but on the other hand, those people think he shouldn't do it. What was in his heart, You know how split he was in his heart, that there was in the room a man who potentially could kill him. And there were 20 people who thought he is a blasphemer. He is a sinner. Which is like, shit. Then Jesus said, see, Jesus didn't just do it. Stand up. He always wants to give a lesson. Jesus is a crusader. He, he fights for a cause. And the cause is people come back to God people, I will teach you the way to God. And he always, he's a teacher, beyond anything. He's the ultimate teacher. Like, whatever he does, he never does it in a discreet way, or, yeah, he tried with that man if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, because there was a leper, and he healed the leper, and he said, don't tell, but then he saw it doesn't work. Everybody heard that he healed the leper. So in this situation, he says, if I'm going to splash it, at least I have to splash it with some usefulness. Like I have to tell the people, look, now pay attention. Do you understand? Of course, most of them did not. But still he did his duty. The point was not that he came to kill a man. What was the importance of that one anonymous man with a shriveled hand? In the history of the next 500 years of this planet, the importance was because a hundred people saw it happening, and they were given a lesson. That's what went into history. We don't even the name of this guy. Who was this Walter who got his arm killed? And we don't know. He's lost somewhere in history. That's not important. But for him, it was important. For his ego, for his life. But for the story of Jesus, it's not important who that guy was. That guy was a pretext. Jesus was looking for any pretext to enlighten people, and in some cases to provoke them. If they were not ready to be enlightened, then get the finger, you know, it's like get the rough part of the deal. Then Jesus said to them, he first did the moralizing lesson, the preparation. He said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? See, he's not asking it's lawful for me to heal. Because they would say no. And they'll say wait until tomorrow. But he just wants to provoke them to show them your law, is incomplete. You cannot describe all the circumstances. The law is alive. It's something which you live, and according to your level of consciousness and other things, it has to be adapted. There is no moral law which is forever engraved in stone. Even the first commandment, "Thou shalt not kill." Yeah, but Krishna says Arjuna, stand up and kill them all. Wait a second. You know, it's like. It's not as simple as that. And then he is asking by twisting the words. Uh, course, they cannot say it's good to do evil or to destroy life. And then he's going to say what I do here is good and it is saving the life of this man, at least psychologically speaking, if not because he is not about to die or something. But he is twisting it like he shows to them that they don't understand the categories of life, that they are just applying mechanically, that in the Sabbath day you shall not do this and this and this and 50 other things. You know, in Israel when I was doing worship there, they told me that they are fundamentalistic Jews. They, they train monkeys to flip the electric switches on Saturday, because theoretically you are not even allowed to turn on the light. And then you have a monkey. They have monkeys here to pick up coconuts, and in Israel they have monkeys to pick, to to switch the switch. Like, how idiotic do you have to be to not be able to switch a switch on Saturday because God said so? Like, Jesus would roll on the floor with laughter and you say, your understanding is completely mechanical, it's like this. That's not like, how are you going to damage your connection to God? If you turn on the light. Why do you think God will get angry because you are turning on the light and then you read the Torah? You turn on the light to read the Torah. Why would that be forbidden? Are you idiotic? You know, you have to be completely nuts to say you can't turn on the light. But some people apply it like this. Some people have this kind of mind. There, of course, Jesus wants to show them We don't even understand the category, so he asks about the philosophical category. He says, on some, especially because it's the day of God, are you supposed to do something good or something evil? Of course, the answer is obvious, it's in the question. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so as much as he could, and his hand was completely restored. Again. You can imagine if the bones were having a different shape. They were smaller, shriveled. What does it mean that in a second your bones, tendons, muscles, nerves, all of them become normal? In a second, you know, it's like we're not talking about just some blowing some prana in that man's hand. We're talking about a new hand being materialized in a second, like he materialized at some point fish and bread, you know, it's like, poof, there it is, you know. It's like, here we're talking, some of these miracles are much bigger than they sound, because it's a total alteration of reality. So what like, what does it take to take a man with a shriveled hand and say, stretch it and then suddenly what? Oh, by the way, it's okay, you know. It's like very, very advanced what's happening there. But, and he did, and they couldn't accuse him, right? He just slapped it in their face. Look, I'm doing something life-affirming, and so on. And of course, the man was grateful, and probably half of the people in the synagogue were like, Oh my God, thank you, God. We've seen something. Now our faith has increased. Let's pray to God for look what God did to this paralytic man or invalid man. You know, the, there was a lot of positive energy about Jesus in that synagogue. So they couldn't quite attack him. But they were so pissed off that this guy was constantly rubbing him in their face. Constantly. And they were singled out, like out of the whole Jewish population. These people, the Pharisees and so on. They were always remaining in offside, like you say in soccer, you know. They were always left in offside, they were always left uncovered. And the more Jesus lived in those days, the more everybody knew that common the simple people have common sense and they love Jesus and they love God, and then there are these leftovers of our society, the idiots who call themselves Pharisees and Zealots and whatever. And these people are completely idiotic, like Jesus put them to shame every day for three years and made fools of them, and now their reputation is to the dust. It's like, who, who can believe such people anymore? So that's why they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Like, you know, in the beginning it's frustration. After a while people start making plans. And then after making plans, he starts like applying those plans. And a little bit more. I want to use the time properly, not too close to early. One of those days, Jesus, it's another story, went out to a mountainside to pray and spend the night praying to God. That's serious. When somebody who fixes an arm like this says, stretch out your arm and it's done. When somebody prays the whole night, you know, this guy can raise a dead man in five seconds. What does he do eight hours? Eight hours, you know, like pray the whole night, a night prayer, like this is serious shit. Okay, you can say maybe Jesus was going and burning the negative karma that he was taking from people or something. There was something which he was doing. It was said in other places that he isolated himself and he was going in lonely places, so he needed to be alone, like now leave me alone, I have to do some of my own internal things. Why? Because even if he was divine, avatar or whatever he was, he still was in a human body and the human body, has it. he had to eat himself. He could not just go for three years not eating. And there have been people who didn't eat like Perez Neumann, Giribala, you know, those women quoted in Yogananda's autobiography. So why didn't Jesus go not eating for three years and a half to make things even more spectacular and to kind of demonstrate things and to make his life easier as well. No? So that's why I say, Jesus was having some limitations, brought by the fact that he was in a human body. And in this case, he went... But then there comes something, something is happening. You will see that Jesus has some moments after which the game changes. And now the game changes with what I anticipate. Jesus designates twelve apostles. Like he has a lot of people that follow him. And then he designates 12 lieutenants, 10 second-in-command, the 12. He designates 12 main disciples. And we all know that those 12 disciples, we talk about them, history is written about them. On the Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus passed away, they were enlightened. They were put in Samadhi, all 12 of them, and 11 out of 12 have been martyrized, have been assassinated, they died of a bad death, of a violent death. Only one of the 12 apostles was not assassinated, that was John, not John the Baptist, don't mix him up, John the Apostle, there are two Johns in the story, one which is before Jesus and one which is disciple of Jesus. So Jesus went and prayed because now he felt like, you know, doing, seeing and doing and seeing. He's been preaching for one year or six months or one year and a half. It doesn't matter. And now things are getting serious. The Israeli polarized society gets polarized with people who worship him and people who dislike him. He's pushing forward. Obviously, he can see if he's intelligent enough to see it, and enough to see it, that this is going to a schism, that this is going to a new religion, that this is going to a new covenant with God, that this is going to something big, and therefore he has to start building a team. Now things are getting serious, and he sees it, and he prays to God. He simply says, "And goes, should I do this? Can I please do this?" Is this my meaning? Like I'm having the brain of a man. And having the brain of a man, I don't know everything in my brain. I was a child, two years old, three years old, five years know, I learned how to make TV the potty, and how to, you know, like, I learned all the skills of it, so it's of course I don't know everything in my brain like this, No, And it's like right now it looks like, ooh, it looks like the stakes are going higher. And it looks like, you know, I might go away, and I have to do something, and I have to leave some followers, I have to build a team. I am not enough. After I go, others will have to still be here. The work is huge. Therefore, that's why he prays. He prays because now, until now, he didn't have apostles. Now, he takes the decision to create, it's much said, to create an institution, to create a religion. They will be followers. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them whom he also designated apostles. So he made twelve special ones. Trying to realize what a choice this was. Those twelve people, you know, like if you were there in that day and you said, me, 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 where did it go five years later? Like, what consequences did this choice have in the history of those people? What about somebody who was this close, but did not become a apostle? Tough luck. (laughs) Like, Like, God needed 12. Why 12? Because 12 is the number of the heart, 12 is the number of the sun, 12 is the number of the astrological signs. Twelve is a number of many, many other sacred things. And last but not least, even the tribes of Israel were divided in twelve tribes. The whole society of Israel was divided according to this principle of the heart chakra. So, therefore, Jesus follows, he would never have fourteen apostles. Fourteen means nothing. It's just a stupid number which means nothing. Twelve means everything. So, by doing this, he addresses it very clearly. Still, the institution is still very Jewish. Later, there will be more prayers and more upping it, and then it becomes transnational, and it becomes multinational, and then it goes beyond the borderlines of Israel, cultural and geographical. So, right now, he got the first thing like, okay, I have to. I have to up my game. I have to raise my game. And therefore he meditated and meditated the whole night. And when he comes back, he says, I have to choose some of you. And uh, of course he chose them according to his heart, according to his clairvoyance, according to his intuition, according to what he saw in that night of prayer, whatever was revealed to him at that time. And so he chose them. And here look, others to even tell us who they were. I never remember the whole list of them because some of them are very famous, some of them have disappeared and only theologians and people like who study Christian history would know to tell you what happened to them. And he also, so he designated the following 12, Simon whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, so Peter and Andrew were brothers, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpheus, so there were two Jameses, Simon, who was also called the Zealot, so there were two Simons, but one of them got called Peter, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas, the Iscariot, who became the traitor later. So, there were twelve. And funnily, with his clairvoyance, he claims, I'm God and I know everything. He chooses twelve, and in those twelve, there is a rotten apple. And he knows. If he doesn't know, he's not Jesus. If he doesn't know, he's not God. If he doesn't know, but you see, of course, Judas has his free will. He chooses to do what he does, so in a certain way you can never say that it was 100% that Judas will do it. So, in this way, He chooses, and as you can see, even Jesus, He leaves this, He allows this shadow to exist there. There is the possibility of something going dark. Because that's how the world is. The world is like this. All of you, especially if you are enthusiastic about Yama and Niyama, and if you are a person who loves the good things, you would say, well, the Divine Consciousness should have created a perfect world. A perfect world does not exist and cannot exist. So you are just dreaming about something impossible. You always need to have pain and pleasure, light and darkness. And thus, Jesus, who is with the creator of the universe, he knows that even in the perfect, wonderful thing which he wants to give to the world, there will always be the germ of darkness. And knowing this, he allows Judas to be part of this dream thing. Later, when Judas hangs himself, there are 11 left. And then they have to choose them. They have, after Jesus goes, they have to choose one more. So they choose one more to replace Judas, but again, this time, there was no need because the game was over, the game about Jesus and all that. And here we start one long chapter, maybe not so long as a chapter, but it's long if I would start explaining on it, so I'm just going to start it a bit to warm you up to it, because it's the famous sermon where he described the blessing. He says, blessed, 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 blessed are those, blessed are those. Which is considered to be very interesting because, see, Jesus suddenly, he lists some values. He says, great is when this happens, You are going to the. he extols some things which are, you wouldn't say that that's a great thing to send the country. No, 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 I don't want that. And Jesus is like putting the values and he says spiritual values, especially in Kali Yuga, are not what people like. Spiritual values are sometimes the other way around. And you have to put up with it. And thus, I'm just going to start reading a little bit. Then in about 10-15 minutes we'll stop. He went down with them. But of course the others were not told, shoe I've got 12 apostles and everybody else buzzed off. They were still there, disciples, pupils, followers, but there were 12 of them who were chosen like you are the leaders of this small community. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A level place, not... A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. Some people wanted to hear, there is a great spiritual man, that's listened listen to them, and some people were there just for healing. It's like with yoga, some people come to yoga for healing, Some people come to yoga because they want to become like Shantaracharya. So the purposes can be different. And in the world of Jesus, there was a place for everybody. All these things were legitimate. So he was famous. There were people, people heard. There is this great guy and all that. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. Now, evil spirits is a very ambiguous thing. In the antiquity of Greece, Rome, Israel, as well as in the antiquity of India and other such places, evil spirits were considered even some diseases of the emotions. And, like, if somebody, for example, is constantly angry, in those days they didn't do psychotherapy, they did exorcism. You are angry. Because there is an angry spirit possessing you and giving you permanent states of anger. Epilepsy was considered possession by bad spirits. Today we say, oh, the cave complex, the wave, this, that, you take a pill and you stop your epileptic. In those days, people suffering epileptic seizures were considered possessed by a mild evil spirit. Not a very evil spirit which made you do horrible things or something. Only once a month or something like this you looked really ugly as you fell on the floor and had spasms and bumped in your mouth. And still it was not nice to see. Not to mention that sometimes people fell down and uh, they were hurt. They were hurt themselves. So when he says here those troubled by evil spirits were cured, This means a lot of neurological, a lot of psychological, a lot of internal things were there. And we're not talking about people with leprosy or people with a shriveled arm. Not the obvious thing. We are talking about diseases of the soul, diseases of the mind, which all of them were considered as persecution from evil spirits. those troubled by evil spirits were cured. Today, even the people who go to Alcoholics Anonymous, they think that somehow the demons have something to do with alcoholics, no? And they pray to God to be saved from negative influences and so on. So, even an alcoholic is a person who is uh, troubled by evil spirits, And Others and others, you can extend it, you know, somebody who is addicted to heroin or cocaine is also a person who is troubled by evil spirits. You know, some of these people are ready to kill for their drugs and things like this and uh, you you understand clearly the implications. So those people <laughs> troubled by evil spirits, which means more subtle diseases, were cured and the people all try to touch Him, because power is coming from Him and healing them all. Try to imagine a little bit beyond the text. People discovered that if they had a disease and they touched Jesus, they were healed faster, better. This man was like an electric eel or something like this. He was like, people touched him and they got healed. Can you imagine thousands of people just trying to touch him, so that they would get healed? And actually it didn't happen because if be, they wouldn't have been healed, hundred people would have we tried to touch this guy, nothing happened, he's an imposter. Like it was continuing all the time, all the time. It's like this man was like a dynamo, it's like somebody was charging him up with electricity from the back or something like this. obviously he had been on a night he had been on a hill and prayed the whole night then you go like this you are like imagine what the presence of Jesus was it's like nobody said about Buddha that they touched him and they got healed Buddha was not manifesting this capacity I don't know if he could or not, that's not important really, it's important for Buddha But it's not important for us. It's important of the fact that Buddha did not have the license to do that. He did not have the permission from Shambhala to show that to the people from India. was not. he didn't do it. Maybe he could do it like Jesus. He didn't do it. So Jesus, like how many people did you hear? In India there is a legend about some Baba in the old days that they were practicing pranayama until they were developing their etheric field that they could heal people even a few meters around them. If you came near them, evil spirits like epileptic people would have a seizure and then they would wake up, clean themselves and be healed for the rest of their lives. We heard about some other people doing this, although I personally haven't seen a single one that could do this. There is this guy, Bert Scalding, who wrote to The Lives of the Masters of the East who says that in India there were and allegedly still are lost in the Himalayas some places, some temples where this is happening. Like the temple is so charged that if people come there with a severe disease, they make a crisis, they fall down and then they stand up and they are healed. And nobody talks about those temples because it's a well guarded secret. And most people go there, they don't know and they just say, oh, there's a nice little temple. there, yeah, they go? away. they don't know what they missed. And or they are healthy, and then nothing is happening for them when they pass by, and they don't realize. So, back to our story. The people try to... T- imagine the, imagine the, the stampede. Can you imagine what's happening if 300 people try to touch your clothes or your body, just get healed, what a mess, what a nightmare, imagine, you know, how were they making order in all of this, and poor Jesus all the time, all the time, all the time, on his back, on his shoulders, on this, somebody one day, and then somebody probably came up with the idea, and said, I have a child at home moment, he's a bit sick, and I have a pillow, I'll touch my pillow onto Jesus, and then give it to my child, you know, people started touching their underwear to Jesus, their robes, their pillows, their something to charge it up. You know, this man was the permanent dynamo giving, emanating healing energy. You know, can could you stop it? Like, could Jesus say, Hey, stop! Knock the cloth, please. You know, it's like when you are surrounded by 300 people that all of them try to touch you because they are hysterical that they are going to get healed. Once you entered in that game you play that game, you know, that is what what can you do with a maw, with the hysteria of a whole crowd that says, Show us another, one. give us another one, more, more. You know? Not only me, but I have a child that is sick at home and wouldn't really here is his sweater, you know. Can you touch his sweater and I gave it home and he will get well? It doesn't take much to jump to such ideas, you know? And then it goes on and on and on and on. Because power was coming from him and healing them all. All. But it's not mentioned. These people, I mean, maybe it was, but they don't mention that there were three people who didn't get anything.
1: Probably they would say,
0: you know, there were like 300 people there and uh, about three of them didn't get much. Because probably they didn't have enough faith or something, no, they would immediately find an excuse. But nobody writes that, it says, and healing them all. All, for God's sake. Imagine the atmosphere. What would happen, Jesus was talking about God, he was not a doctor. His interest was not to practice medicine in the villages of Israel, and nevertheless, this was a large part of what was happening. And he accepted it. He was shining. He was shining. That's why people who described in history, they described that being in the presence of Jesus was very peculiar. Like almost nobody has been like Jesus. Like, you know, like this man was shining in a way that you, know, you almost cannot imagine. Imagine emotionally, psychologically what kind of love and wisdom was coming from this man when you are just two meters away from him. What did you feel? This is only people that did Samyama with Jesus. If you will do yoga and perform Samyama and you will get a state of communion with Jesus, only then you will start understanding. And so, this rabbit hole goes very deep, very far, and looking at his disciples, he spoke especially for his disciples, but of course the whole world hears, because it's written and transmitted. Looking at his disciples, he was talking for his, I talk, for you who came here tonight. If it will be uploaded on the internet, maybe many other people will listen to it, but I'm talking to those. Who are here. So looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He starts with the nine blessings. It's not a coincidence that there are nine, but we'll get next Thursday on that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is obviously Talking from the standpoint of, a, of an ascetic, the way he saw religion practiced—maybe he was in Egypt, maybe he was in India and Tibet. Then he came back, and maybe he visited the Essenes, you know, all the others. All you know. Again, I'm not saying he was an Essenian or something, but whatever he had seen in his life in those days there was not much Tantra happening. Like the people who are doing spirituality, they were doing it in the celibate, dry, poor, and other such conditions. Until today, the people who go to become monks in the Christian monastery, they first of all have to take the vows of chastity, like Brahmacharya, and the vows of poverty. And then they take a vow of obedience because so that the ego doesn't become too big. And Jesus is not, it's not his. We don't know why, that's what God gave him to do, and Jesus is not trying to say, blessed are you who are poor, and in the 10th century there will be a guy, Abhinavagupta, who will not be poor, and he will also be blessed. He doesn't go into peculiarities. He doesn't say it's the only way. But he says now, here, for you, in this century, in this place, all of you who want to do what John the Baptist did, or all of you who want to do what, I don't know, other prophets did, yeah, there have been kings like David and some, but they are more like an exception to the rule. Those of you who want to be, which are the blessings? You are blessed, he says, but you are poor. This has generated a formidable, formidable current in Christianity. That current is maintained even in Islam, although in another way, like the Islamic people and the teacher of one of the people who were like teachers to Muhammad, the prophet of God, was an Nestorian Christian uh, monk. And therefore, even Muhammad, before he got into his uh, great mission, he knew something about religion. Like everybody has heard something from somebody. And therefore, even Muhammad was conditioned by this in the meaning like he understood that spiritual practitioners, they go in an ashram, they have one begging bowl for the food, they have one row, they beg their food, and, you know, they should then, all day long, they eat each other, rice and dal. You know, they don't eat caviar or things like this. It doesn't go for... So, religion in general, as preached, as you can see, the monks of the Buddhists, who go and they beg every morning, and others, and others, uh, like we've seen a few days ago in that spiritual movie, the reluctant saying, well, people were going, begging, living in modesty. That was considered to be good for a spiritual life. It was this one simple way, like most people are longing for power, money, comfort, luxury, and laziness and other things which come together with it and the spiritual people who are supposed to stay alert, work, be humble, do their thing. This thing is one of the things which does not fit with some aspects of the tantric tradition. The tantric tradition does not say that you have to be poor, poor, poor. But the tantric tradition, at least under my rendering of it to you, the tantric tradition says, you don't need to be poor, but if you will have money, you risk to fuck your spiritual evolution very much. Like, in a certain way, money is an energy, and money is a power, and money is this. And also, don't forget that Christian monks and others, we say money is the devil. So, the panatrix claim that they can dance with this devil, all the money, and not get corrupted by it. In my life, I've seen both examples. Like, I've seen people who handled a lot of money. Father Pio, Christian, he built a hospital. <clears throat> there were even cases of some of the administrators of the hospital, although they were fervent Italian Christians, loving Padre Pio and saying, Me, me, I will build the hospital for you. I, I want to help you, I want to do karma yoga, he and so on. Then five years later they were found embezzling some of the money. And there was scandal. And even Padre Pio was dragged into it while he was a holy man. And eventually it was proven that he hadn't taken one penny. He was clean, but there was a lot of money there to build a hospital, no? And then, uh, you know, sometimes the devil sticks its tail into the things. Swami Shivananda built an ashram, a kitchen, a printing press, a hospital, and many other things. It must have been a lot of money. <coughs> even at that time, now it's a lot of money. That property is huge, but even at the time of Shivananda, must have been quite a bit of money for poor India, for rural India. <coughs> <coughs> and guess what? The ashram, in 1950-something, the ashram had a car, one of those old shabby ambassador cars from India. But still they had a car. Swami Shivananda could climb in the car and be driven to Haridwar, 20 kilometers away. And like, what does it look silly. Is this how Baba's are supposed to live? Swamis are supposed to be hungry in an ashram, live in a cave in the Himalayas with two grains of rice per day. You know, Swami Shivananda was having a car. He must have handled a lot of money. But he was not accused of being mishandling the money or becoming possessed by it. So the tantric tradition and the yama of Niyama of yoga speaks in a more universal way. Like the problem is not that somebody has the money, the problem is that somebody misuses them and is attached to them and is ready to kill for those money and all that stuff. And but Jesus, coming from a non-tantric environment and wanting to be very clear. He says, you know, the moral, why should I go like this? There is a simple option. Give everything you have to the poor and follow me. The symbol, like, you know, then the, we don't risk anything. You are not going to say that maybe I'm rich, but I'm a rich spiritual person. No, 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 no. Let's not leave it to the evaluation of your own. You know, it's like, just drop everything and just focus on your spiritual things. Today, I know very few people who would study 12 years of yoga by choosing to be poor. There are very few people who go into a Sufi dharga or who go into a Christian monastery knowing that they are going to have nothing. There are such people and they are very brave spiritually and Jesus fits with like this, has generated an obsession. Rich people are considered to be bad. Other and other doctrines are there which come together with this. And uh, I was looking when I lived in India at the structure of the Indian society. Who are the poorest category of people in India? The Muslims. They are about 25% of the Indian population, is Islamic. They are the social layer which is the most poor in India. But uh, India was ruled by Muslim dynasties, the Mughal dynasties, for six centuries. From the 12th to the 18th century, when the British took over, India was ruled by Muslims. They were the ruling class. And the Muslims were privileged and chosen to be ministers, to be given business licenses, they managed to fuck it up. Although they have been the political and military rulers of that country for six centuries, today and a hundred years ago, they were the most poor people in India. Why? Because the Quran just extends this thing from Jesus, which said, Blessed be the poor for theirs. Is the kingdom of God. Of course, realize that here Jesus means in another way some, because there are so many poor people in this world who are violent, ugly, addicted to drugs and alcohol, really wicked, ready to harm, ready to do physical violence ready to you know, completely ignoring the scriptures and the spirituality and ready to blaspheme and to curse against God and to do such things. So it must not be about poverty, it must be about a poverty which is assumed consciously. like I could be rich because I'm very intelligent or whatever, skillful, powerful. and I choose to give up everything because I want to make sure that I will not be tempted ever and I will go in the footpath of God. And then, ten centuries later, you get like a guy like Akinavagutta who comes and says, I don't even need to be poor because I'm pretty much sure that I can deal with this demon. This demon called money, Mamona, as it's called somewhere in the Bible, to serve Mammon." The demon of money, this mammon will not possess me. I can like Swami Shivananda, like I don't know who, Padre Pio, I can swim in the middle of a lot of money and so on, but it doesn't touch me. I am detached from all this. I can deal with it. Is it possible? Yes. It is possible. But It is risky. It's like playing with fire. So whoever decides to take this path has to be very careful and verify themselves from time to time. Did I still get it? Do I have it? Am I ready? If I would go in a Buddhist monastery now and have just a robe and have to beg every morning, could I do it? Would I be ready to do it? At the end of the road, there is nirvana. There is immortality. There is freedom. There is salvation. That's the big prize that I'm asking for, that I'm searching for. Would I be ready to do any sacrifice for that? Anything. If it means I have to be poor the next 50 years of my life, would I take it with stoicism, with patience, like a Spartan? you know, like I endured it. Yes, if that's the price, I don't know why. Jesus was in a bad mood that day. And he said, blessed be the poor. So it's like a paradigm. It's like he launched an archetypal thing. And many people believed in it, but little happened, they say, we have to be poor. And you go to a monastery and they are poor. The monastery can be rich, but they, as private persons, have nothing. And therefore, One has to verify oneself, if one is there, ready to let go of everything. So, in this way, uh, there are many implications which come from here, but remember that they kept it, like, it it stayed in history. Jesus had other parables, the parable of the rich man, I don't know if it's in the Gospel of Luke and if you stumble over it, is here. But there are other statements of Jesus about this. So Jesus really believes in this simplicity. He believes in let the crazy people go into the Fata Morgana of the world and let the simple people stay, like the Jews stayed 40 years in the desert eating manna from the rocks from the floor. It is a point of view. And coming from Jesus, It's not just the point of view of some dude. There is some weird dude called Jesus, and he has this weird idea that you, like, Jesus is still Jesus. So his idea is very strong, and it was kept in almost every form of spirituality. The Jews, for example, they did not the Jewish culture separated and they didn't take this. Like, Jesus came up with this poverty thing, which he... We refused Jesus, he was not our Messiah, and we refused his blessings. You know, what he calls a blessing, it's a curse for us Jews. So the Jews developed in history, as it's well known, in the last 2,000 years since Jesus passed by, the Jews developed a culture which is very much focused on money, profit, richness, and things like that. Not all the Jews managed to fall, fall in the fold of it, but there is a sort of superstition in the world today that many rich people and many rich things are Jewish, and that the Jews are very good with the money and all that. So for the Jews, this fell on a sterile ground. They didn't. It's very seldom in the Jewish religion that some of these traditionalists who have pearls and hats, the Hasidim or others, they would preach poverty. Even there, there is grandfather is having a little business, and business is okay, it's legitimate. Why like you make some money, of course, and of course, you make a ton of money, it's still okay, and so on. You no, like there is not a sense of guilt while in Christianity, in Islam, we find some similar things in Buddhism and others. There is this, that's why I said in India, which is a society where you have many religions put together, you can see very clearly because in India, some religious communities are super rich and some religious communities are poor. And again, I'm repeating, the Islamic, there is not much of a Christian community in India, it's very little, so they can't really see clearly about it, because it's really, really minor in India, but the poorest is the uh, Islamic community. Just for your curiosity, because we talk about Kandra, you know which is the richest? The Jain. the giant people, the giant religion. I don't know, I have never been in a giant family or lived with the giants, but apparently the giant people they don't have any sense of guilt about making a ton of money. If you become as rich as Tata or whoever is rich in India, you know, and you are a giant, sure you can do charity, you can build temples, you can do a lot of good things, but there is absolutely no feeling of holding back. So any one of you wants to develop a psychology of abundance get born again in a giant family and get brainwashed by your giant parents because whatever they put in the minds of the giant children it's something which favors richness and thus you know like they yeah you are giant and this and you have business and you have textile mills and whatever businesses they have in India, huge businesses and there are uh, some Hindu classes, not all the Hindus, but some Hindu castes come next, like the next ones after the giants are the marwars. The marwars are a special caste of Hindus and they are the ones who have almost all the retail businesses from India. And they sell saris with just a five-rupee profit, but to a billion people. And then it adds up to incredible wealth. And they don't have a problem with it. Other Hindus maybe want to copy Ramakrishna and to have nothing. Not the Marwars. The Marwars are Vaishnavas, not Shaivas. And they have something from this Vaishnava religion which is preaching a sort of a comfort, comfortable life, luxury, it's nothing wrong with it. That's why I say that you can you have to take with a pinch of salt that although Jesus is such a great spirit, don't forget he taught in Israel to the Jews two thousand years ago in a very poor environment because people the climate is desert, and people are not having abundance of food, abundance of textiles, abundance like the Jewish community was relatively poor in those days, and therefore what Jesus says, in my opinion, does not apply universally. It's a very powerful stream and it has influenced more than 90% of the spiritual seekers of this humanity in the last 2,000 years. But looking at the existence of an Apinavagupta or others, Apinavagupta was not a spoiled, rich man, but he was having a comfortable life. At least that much can be said. You can say that it's not absolutely true always. Like, Apinavagupta should have been barred from reaching Nirvana. And he was not. He was a gigantic spiritual master. And he did it while having silk trousers. Silk trousers didn't prevent him from going into Baba Samadhi. So, that's why here what Jesus says has to be interpreted in the context. Even Jesus depends on the context because he talks to those people. And he doesn't say, and by the way, you should know that in Kashmir there are people who don't follow under this rule. Why confuse people when you have to give them a clear black and white rule? So the black and white rule for you living in Palestine at the year zero is this. And therefore, he says, don't take it like a curse that you are poor and so on. Blessed be you. And I'm going to continue next week. <clears throat> by explaining, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What do you mean? Yours is the kingdom of God. So it was expressed beautifully, I anticipate to give you food for thought, by a great yogi from Sri Lanka called Yoga Swami, who said, Because I don't have anything, I actually have everything. Because I am a beggar, I have everything. A very subtle philosophy coming from the yoga of India. So, of course, Jesus goes on this. That was his choice. That's what he was teaching to this community. And it remained very powerful in humanity. Even Ramakrishna could not touch money physically. He could not touch coins because he felt burned in his hands. He even got blisters. They saw blisters in his palm. From normal coins. Like the guy was such a maniac, such a hysterical maniac, that he could produce blisters as if he was burned by a normal temperature piece of metal, a coin. But he wanted to show with this his utter rejection. Like, what did money do to humanity? How much evil, darkness, ego, power games, and shit has happened because of this? People say that money was necessary for the development of the society. Well, Ramakrishna begs to differ. He begs to disagree with anthropologists and politicians and others. Ramakrishna says we would still live in the Garden of Eden if we didn't invent money and other such similar things. But of course maybe we would not have space shuttles the industry would not be possible to develop in such circumstances. So you lose some, you win some. Like this we do have space shuttles, but many people have lost their soul. And then is it worth it? Was it worth it? It's all big questions. We'll come back to this first blessing of Jesus next week when we continue some of his words. Trying to understand how it is you see, I'm even getting to the point where I'm saying, actually, I could contradict Jesus on this one, not because he's not true, but because, again, for Akhinavagupta, there were different standards. And different standards can apply to you. That's why I'm not saying that you guys should stay poor. You are in a tantric school. So, if you think you can dance with this demon and not fall to the ground, and I'm not finding you spiritually dead 20 years from now then go ahead and don't forget me when you get very rich because we could use like we don't even have this piece of land in three four years in four years this piece of land is gone its leased, and it still has four years of its lease it costs about half of a million dollars to buy it any one of you has a checkbook with you we can buy it tomorrow but again I'm saying, you know, so it's nothing wrong with the money and even for a spiritual purpose. But we are simply saying what Jesus said was applicable in those circumstances for those people. So thus, we want to understand really well what Jesus said. And there is nothing wrong that he simply said, you know what, I'm not going to talk about Kashmir or you whatever. Know, I'm going to focus here on Peter and Paul and Bartholomew and Philip and those guys. This is my, you know, to stop talking to me about Abhinavagukta in our book, the 10th century, you know. like Here and now. So here and now, then and now for Jesus was this thing. This is what worked and this is what served the purpose of the message which he wanted to bring. I think it is enough for today, more than I wanted to go, I actually wanted bit over time. Thank you all for joining and being patient to hear all these things. If you have questions, I never take questions during satsangs, only Tuesdays on q and A. This Tuesday there was no Q&A because of the young spiral, the full moon, but generally when there are Q&As on Tuesdays, you can take over the questions from the satsang and bring them on Tuesday and ask me more if something was unclear or too provocative or twisted or sounded like not being in accordance with yoga, I can, of course, try to answer all these things. Again, thank you all. See you in the next activities of Agama. And sorry for
1: keeping you a bit late tonight. I hope you're spiritually important.